fun. It's Thursday, June 10th at 5 p.m. And you are at the bar. I'm here <laughs> with Independent Women's Law Center. And I am drinking a classic New England Cape Cod or vodka and cranberry juice. Um, I'm Inez Stepman with Independent Women's Forum, and I'm drinking red wine today. Um, but thank you for tuning in for the sixth virtual happy hour conversation um, at the bar, where we discuss issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. You can catch us every two weeks at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, streaming on the Independent Women's Forum Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn pages, and, and um, other spots. We are super excited today to have with us Abigail Schreier, the author of Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, which was named a book of the year by The Economist um, and will be released in paperback on June 30th. I'm super excited to have this conversation too. This is a book that I read last summer um, and actually I had to put it down and take breaks. It was so troubling to me that every couple of chapters I would have to put it down and read something light for a few days and then come back to it. Um, but I think for people who, who haven't read it and who've just heard about Abigail and her work, um, they may not fully understand what it is about. It's not actually a book about transgenderism generally, and it's not a book about the political or legal rights of transgender Americans. It's really a book about the relatively recent epidemic of rapid onset gender dysphoria in teen girls who did not previously um, ever show any discomfort with their birth sex. Abigail is one of the bravest writers I know, and I'm thrilled she is joining us today at the bar. Abigail, Thank welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so just, yeah, first tell us what you're drinking. Oh, I'm drinking water. I, uh, <laughs> only, it's only two in California. You know? It's only, it is That's only true. two in California. And I, there. I sort of, uh, uh, yeah. I sort of dance on, uh, on, on a knife's edge. So I sort of have to stay sharp for these conversations. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, absolutely understandable. But, um, how did you end up on a knife's edge here? How did this topic cast your attention? You, you've written about many other topics in the Wall Street Journal. You have a legal background, a very, you went to many fine universities, Yale Law School, Oxford. You know, how did you end up writing your book about this particular topic? It's really simple. I wanted to write about young women and how they were doing. And, um, while I was in the middle of writing about it, a woman contacted me whose daughter had been caught up in this. You know, daughter was, you know, um, you know, had never been gender nonconforming, had boyfriends in high school, that sort of thing. And she had, um, this woman had read a piece I wrote in the Wall Street Journal and thought I might, you know, consider the topic. She told me her daughter got caught up in this craze. Um, when she went off to college, the daughter had a lot of mental health issues and always had trouble fitting in. And in her first semester of college, decided she was trans and, and started a course of testosterone. She told me people all across the country were dealing with this. And in fact, it turned out all across the West. And she told me she had reached out to every journalist she could think of and no one wanted to write about it. So I immediately um, called an editor I know and, and put this woman in touch and all her sources in touch with an investigative journalist and nothing came of it. And when I realized it, she was right, no one wanted to write about this. I waited three months and then I got back in touch and I said, all right, I'll, I'll talk to your sources and I'll write a piece. I did, I wrote a piece about it for the Wall Street Journal. And then I was absolutely flooded with parents who wanted to tell me their story. So tell us why this epidemic that you talk about in the book is different than 
let's call it regular transgenderism, because you have you talk in the book about how transgenderism has, you know, it's it's existed across cultures and across history in a very small, minute percentage of the population. It, but you say it's not this population. Why? And so why do you, first of all, what's the difference and why do you think it's happening in this population now? Right. So gender dysphoria is, is a condition, is the severe discomfort in one's biological sex. It's not sort of a passing discomfort. It's a very severe, insistent, persistent, consistent discomfort. And we have a hundred year diagnostic history of it. So we know what it is. It typically afflicted boys between ages two and four it comes on. And it's the very insistent, no, mommy, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl feeling. Um, and, um, and that's who it mostly was. It was. It began in early childhood, and then most adolescents would, would most kids would outgrow this around adolescence. Many of them would become gay men, and some would not outgrow it. And those are what we used to call transsexuals. Um, today, the dominant demographic out of nowhere in the last decade, the dominant demographic claiming to have gender dysphoria is teenage girls. So it's a demographic we've never before seen. W women have never had this in any significant numbers and certainly not coming on in adolescence out of nowhere, the way their, you know, their parents describe it. And even young women who've been through this will describe it to you. Um, having come on all of a sudden in adolescence, usually around puberty, when young women are naturally uncomfortable in their bodies. So there's something very, whenever you see a, a demographic jump like this, where the a condition jumps to a totally different demographic. It sort of behooves you to ask why. And a researcher at Brown University did, Dr. Lisa Lippman, and she did a very uh, peer-reviewed study, and she hypothesized that peer contagion was at play, that, that kids were basically, kids in genuine pain, teen girls, were, were sort of convincing each other uh, that this was their the source of their problem in the, in the way that teen girls do with anorexia, bulimia, and other, other such uh, conditions. What, why do you think it's this particular demographic where we do see these explosive numbers? And maybe I'll also ask you to, to put some numbers to those numbers. Um, sure. How much are we seeing this exploding? And why this particular demographic? Because it's not just teen girls. It's, it it is, seems to be, at least, and maybe you can correct this, um, affluent teen girls, mostly white. Um, there is a very specific uh, sort of profile that seems to be making up an inordinate number of these rapid onset cases. Well, one of the things that was interesting about it is, as you said, it was the same demographic that falls for every other, um, you know, what they used to call hysteria or peer contagion, right? So it's the same population that gets diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or multiple personality disorder. Um, uh, it, it, you know, the same population that, you know, where, where anorexia spreads and bulimia spreads, these are high anxiety, high depression, white girls and, and very often upper middle class, middle class and upper middle class, very educated, very bright, but they struggle socially. Um, and, and you asked for some numbers. Um, I'll give you some numbers that I have. Uh, it's difficult to get total, you know, because we don't have centralized healthcare in the United States. We have, um, it, it, we don't have one gender clinic than they do in Canada. So, sorry, like they do in, in the UK. I'll, so I'll tell you the numbers that I do now. In the UK, we know that the rise in this population, teen girls presenting at gender clinics, um, asking for hormones and surgeries, um, rose 4,400% in the last decade. In the United States, we don't have one gender clinic, right? But we know that in 2000, 
let's see, 2007, we had one gender clinic in the United States. And we know that today we have 300, we have over 300. And we know that between 2016 and 2017, the number of biological females uh, presenting for gender surgeries in the United States quadrupled. So we know that they're very, very high numbers. And there are some other numbers we know too. We know that you know, there are various estimates on how many teenagers are now claiming to be transgender, but we know it's extremely high. So uh, the CDC in 2018 reported 2% of high school students suddenly claimed to be transgender. Uh, a more recent study said that it was 10% of high school students. So we're, we're seeing very, very high numbers of trans identification in the United States as, as well. I mean, it's really all across the West. Sorry for my gardener. Hopefully he's on the way out. Yeah. Um, you know, this is really just anecdotal, but I know um, I know that your daughter is younger and um, Inez doesn't have a daughter, but I have three and I've raised them all to adulthood at this point. Um, but watching them and their friends grow up, I will tell you that, that what I, I noticed a phase that many of them went through, usually starting around third grade um, and kind of ending around fifth or sixth, where they all became what, what we moms called androgynous. And they started wearing camouflage pants and not really wanting to groom themselves, brush their hair, wearing baggy sweatshirts. Some of them were starting to develop um, and maybe they were trying to hide that. And, you know, my own daughter actually went through this very short phase of a few months where she wanted all her friends to call her Bobby. I have no idea why. The teacher started to call her Bobby. And I went in there and I said, her name is Carmen. She's not going to be called Bobby. And it ended. And, you know, there was no, it ended from there. I mean, she she was a feminine girl. She, she's an athlete. Um, it was just a short little phase. But I wonder if my generation of moms sort of dodged a bullet because, um, you know, I feel like my girls kind of grew up in this golden era where girls could be whatever they wanted. But now girls who might, you know, be struggling with going through puberty or being androgynous or being wanting to be really athletic might be told something different by their schools. And the school might have treated me very differently today if I had gone in there and said, do not call her Bobby. Well, I don't think your generation of moms dodged a bullet. I think your generation of moms got the bullet. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, but I think that you may have escaped it. And I think one of the reasons is you were really, you know, completely, um, you know, obviously your school went along with what you said. Today, very few schools will do that. What you're, this went along was, with, you know, more than 10 years ago. Oh, it was more than 10 years ago. Okay, so maybe. I'm, I'm, 50, I'm 50, almost 54. Oh, you look so sorry. my daughter's 23. Okay. So maybe, maybe you did dodge a bullet in that case. Um, but I would say, but you also, you know, went in and, and really asserted yourself. And most of the parents I talk to are um, progressive. They are much less, um, sometimes they're much less willing to immediately assert themselves, especially in the face of expertise, if they see that someone's, you know, an expert or claims to be an expert. And also if they're very worried about being perceived as anti-LGBTQ. So at first, you know, they're very reluctant to put their foot down with a lot of these things because they support gay rights and they don't have a problem with having a gay kid. So they don't want to, you know, manifest that they are upset with that. The problem is that this is something very different from being gay. 
this is, you know, a, a fast push to um, hormones and surgeries. And no one, not only will no one stop your child from, from that progress, they will actively promote it and push it, whether it's right or not. Um, so it's, it's really not like having a kid who comes out as gay. I mean, I can't say that enough. It's a very, very different thing. Um, it's, it's setting up a lifetime patient. A lot of these surgeries are very, very risky. And the long-term eff effects of, of, these medic of these hormones, we, we actually don't know what they'll be. Yeah, you, you titled your book Irreversible Damage for a reason. And I want to ask you both about that damage um, and about how you, you call it reliance on experts, like how the expert class and, and medical field is responding to this. But first, I want to play a brief clip from the 60-minute special um, of detransitioners, um, girls who had gone through this, um, had either taken hormones or surgery, um, and then decided they they weren't in fact transgender, re-embraced their biological sex and, and what they've had to deal with. So I'm going to play that clip real quick and then I'm going to ask you to address Laura it. Laura Edwards-Leeper was the first psychologist at the first major youth gender clinic in the U.S. at Boston Children's Hospital. She says she has helped hundreds of teens and young adults transition successfully after a comprehensive assessment. Do you have conversations with your colleagues about this whole area of accepting what young people are saying too readily? Yes, everyone is very scared to speak up because we're afraid of not being seen as being affirming or being supportive of these young people or doing something to hurt the trans community. But even some of the providers are trans themselves and share these concerns. We also interviewed more than 30 detransitioners who say they also had experienced regret, including these four who hadn't met before now. How many of you feel that you were blindly affirmed? I didn't get enough pushback on transitioning. I went for two appointments, and after the second one, I had, like, my letter to go get on cross-sex hormones. Two visits? That's it? All four tell us they learned about transitioning on the Internet, where there are transformation videos on YouTube, trans influencers, and forums. Yeah, I've just never been able to be me, but I can now. For Daisy in Chicago, who says she started taking hormones at 18, everything was great in the beginning. After every step that you take, every milestone feels like a million bucks. When I got top surgery, I was elated. When I changed my name, I was elated. But when everything that I had set out to do was done, I still felt incomplete. There's worry that the idea that People regret the move can be used against trans people in this political environment. I worry about it, too. I think the kinds of things we advocate for don't hurt trans people. Like, we want there to be more help from therapists with dysphoria. We want there to be longer-term tracking of health outcomes. Everyone benefits from that. Um, so we saw two things in that video, obviously, as... as um one of one of those kids mentioned they're dealing with the after effects of either hormones or irreversible surgery um two they were able to walk into medical you know establishments and be as they say affirmed um every step of the way 
without any of the normal safeguards we would have for prescribing serious medications or surgery. How is it that the expert class, in this case, the medical professionals, the associations, all of that, um, have thrown out the window the normal standards where you would balance the risks of this kind of intervention and warn people, especially young people, about the risks of the, that kind of, of life-altering intervention? So it's exactly like every other institution that's been captured in America, in that a very aggressive, ideologically committed group comes in, makes completely irrational demands, and good people say nothing. It's the exact same. So right now, the best doctors bite their tongues very often. Now, there are a few who don't, who are willing to speak up, very few, far too few. So the best doctors, I have, you know, I have a friend who's a surgeon who said, I don't, I'm not comfortable doing gender surgery on a, you know, he's extremely, um, extremely talented and very, very highly trained and specialized surgeon, a plastic surgeon. And he doesn't do gender surgery on children because he feels uncomfortable doing it for a variety of reasons. And he is horrified, not just by the surgery, but he told me at his hospital, which is a top hospital in California, um, the person that they've hired to do it because the person who's eager to do it is completely inadequately trained in his view. No, no fellowship in uh, transferring of peripheral nerves, none of the typical fe fellowships you would expect from a surgeon who's doing highly, highly experimental surgery. Now that doesn't mean that it can't be done well, um, that, that you know, various gender surgeries can't be done well. You know, of course I hear all about a lot of the ones that have gone terribly badly. Um, but the, the eagerness to do these surgeries and to prescribe these hormones is being pushed. We now have, we have affirmative care as the standard. It's been pushed through nearly every medical accrediting organization has adopted this. The doctor's job is to agree and affirm and set the child on a, on a path towards um, medical transition. And we have conversion therapy bans in 20 states that say, if you, if you don't go along with this, you might be accused of converting a child out of their gender identity. You might violate a conversion therapy ban. So the good people are terrified and, and, and the ideologically committed ones, the ones who are affirmation only can't, you know, can't transition them fast enough. They are the ones with the booming practices. What I, what I heard those detransitioners talking about in that clip we played um, was really just a plea to sort of pump the brakes on adolescent transition, not to say, you know, that people shouldn't be allowed to transition after going through various protocols, but just to sort of pump the brakes on it um, and see if maybe there isn't something else going on there, particularly in the case of, of the rapid onset dysphoria where the, where the teen has never previously identified as the opposite sex. Um, but to play devil's advocate for a minute, I, I know the trans community would say, well, the earlier you transition, the more likely you are to actually pass as the gender with which you know you identify. So for example, if you if you transition before puberty um, and, and you're a boy transitioning to, to female, you'll never develop the deep voice of a man. Um, and, and you won't have the big hands and you won't have the broad shoulders. And so to transition early. Um, they believe is the earlier the better because it will help them live fully as their true selves. That's what they would argue. So there are a lot of problems with that argument. Yes. One of the it. biggest problems is that, of course, the vast majority of kids outgrow this. 
So starting them on a path and locking them in at to it doesn't make sense where we know somewhere between 60 and 90% of these kids, there've been 11 different studies in this saying anywhere from 61 specifically to 98% of the kids will outgrow this, will outgrow actual real gender dysphoria, okay? Second of all, that argument is often made for men right? Because they're worried that men won't be able to pass men who get the larger hands and the, you know, deeper voice and the, you know, the, the Adam's apple and whatnot, they won't be able to pass. The problem is they're applying that argument to teenage girls, teenage girls whose testosterone can perform a fairly effective transformation, physical transformation. I mean, you would be, you know, I have friends who are, you know, male to, uh, sorry, female to male, uh, transgender adults. And it's a very impressive presentation and one that you would not necessarily know. Um, um, testosterone does, especially in the massively high doses that, that they're given, it really does perform a huge transformation on the body. So it, they're really, it's really not a very good reason. Third of all, the mental health benefits of transition long-term, we just don't have the studies to show that. We don't have good long-term studies to show that um, that there will be long-term better mental health outcomes for this population if they're transitioned. But we so do presumably for a girl, if a 16-year-old girl uh, came to her parent or a doctor or to you and said, I, "I think I'm a boy. I'd like to go through this process," and and you were weighing the pros and cons with her of transitioning now or waiting. Is it, is it fair to say that if she waited until she were 20, 21, 22, that she'd still be able to make the transition, um, you know, without, she won't have lost anything in the way that, that maybe a boy would if he didn't transition early? Oh, I see. Well, look, you no, know, she'd still, she'd still be able to pass as a man if she didn't. Well, you know, I don't know, you know, people have different natural hormone levels and, um, and, and can take different levels of, hormones and, and take to it differently. I mean, I know there, you know, I know a lot of detransitioners at this point and they've had different effects from testosterone. Um, you know, some of them have a permanent five o'clock shadow, others don't. Um, but I will say this in science, we tend to try to deal with the risks we know, not the possibilities we don't. Right. And the risks we do know is that high likelihood of infertility, sexual dysfunction, vaginal atrophy, uterine atrophy, possibly requiring a prophylactic hysterectomy um, because of the high, you know, concern about endometrial cancer. We've got a lot. Oh, and then there's cardiac, a very high, you know, high risk of cardiac event. I mean, there's a lot of major, major risks to these hormones. Now, I've never come out against them. I've never come out against them because I completely support um, transition for mature adults. I have no issue with it. I don't consider it my business. Right. Um, but that said, you know, brushing aside medical risks is such a massive problem. First of all, because we want people to be cared for properly. We want them to get the best care. And unfortunately, the activist response is to try to shut anyone up who tries to address these risks. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's something that is owed to a patient by the medical establishment um, to, to give an accurate presentation of those risks and to weigh them with the, the benefit of actual, you know, medical expertise that takes decades to acquire. Um, but I want to talk to about another institutional actor in all this, and that's the schools. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, a lot of parents are completely blindsided by this because the schools, you know, we started this off talking about how Jennifer, you know, went to her school and said, you're not going to call my daughter Bobby. Um, what is the role that the schools are playing in all of this? Um, and like, I guess uh, we hear all the time about social media. So how would you balance um, those various influences on these young women from social media, from the schools? I mean, how are these these influences playing in uh, to this explosion of young women who are identifying as the opposite sex? Right. So so everybody has sort of their role to play. And um, uh, there's no question the, you know, gender indoctrination factory that has become, you know, our public school system and a lot of private schools is playing a major role as well. Um, we know, you know, there's been a lot of exposure now of the, you know, critical race theory being taught in schools, but there's, there's you know, the, the parallel with um, gender ideology, which is being pushed constantly on schools. And teachers are very proud to keep the secret from parents of, you know, I, of the child's new announced gender. Um, remember that these are these young women are often beset by other mental health problems, and they really do have trouble fitting in. So having a, an ability to be celebrated at school um, and have a special relationship with the teacher and have other kids um, approve of them and celebrate them is really attractive for young women who are going through puberty and really struggling to fit in. One of the things you talked about in your book, and I actually found it incredibly sexist, is um, it seems like some of the schools are asking students to identify traits of their own or, or hobbies or interests. And then when they identify traits that are stereotypically male, they're being told that maybe their gender identity is in fact male. When, you know, in fact, there are lots of little girls who love to play soccer or ice hockey and, you know, aren't really into dolls and would prefer to play trains and run around with the boys. Um, and, and, and it used to be that feminists wanted a world where their daughters could be anything. They could be dancers, they could be athletes, they could be homemakers, they could be lawyers. But now are our daughters being told that they aspire to male things, that, that they're not women? Right, so it is incredibly sexist, but we've sort of had a mind meld in America. I mean, it's like, you know, we also know that, you know, it's racist to think that your racial traits are, you know, your, your, these phony racial traits are essential or that they are real. Um, and yet we're peddling this nonstop in the schools and we're doing the same thing with gender, right? They're basically teaching sexism on the kids. I mean, that's what gender ideology is. It's teaching kids that there are feminine traits like, you know, being illogical and liking <laughs> dance and music. And there are masculine traits, which are rationality and being good at math and sports. I mean, this is complete nonsense, but for some reason we've all sort of gone along with it. And, you know, it's the extent to which we've gone along with it. First of all, no women, no women's groups, almost no women's groups speak out, right? Against this stuff in America. And you see the difference from England. In England, so in America, my book was published um, by a conservative press, Regnery. And in England, the exact same book was published by a mainstream British press, Swift Press. Why? Because in America, you, you don't have, unfortunately, across the aisle, people speaking out about this. You know, it's, you know, unfortunately, liberals have been really hesitant to take this on and speak out publicly, whereas in England, they're vibrant. You have, you know, lesbians speaking out, feminists across the aisle, you know, 
of you know speaking out and and in America you really have you know organizations like Wolf the Women's Liberation Front and very very few others. You know, it's funny my kids used to watch this show called Full House and there was one episode where uh, uh, the the child of Uncle Jesse uh, the little boy was playing with dolls and Uncle Jesse was concerned about his son playing with dolls and I forgot whether it was the teacher or the mother who said to him you know what little boys who play with dolls become? And he said, what? And she said, good fathers. And, you know, I thought that was really, that was really sweet. But now if your son plays with a doll, are they being told that, you know, maybe they're not really a boy? I don't know. Yes, yes they're being told that. They're being told that by, you know, everything from television to teachers to there being read books in school. I mean, it depends what school they go to, but you know, generally, um, the the it's it's almost everywhere. Um, they are told that um, you know, I mean, it's like you know, my my kids went to you know, my kids go to religious school, and they were on a coding program that the school set up for them to learn to code. And the first question they asked them was, "Are you non-binary?" Or, I mean, they're introducing the idea that only they know their true gender and that it might be something other than their biological sex. Well, that's fine. It doesn't make a kid have a trans identity, but then the kid goes through a hard time in middle school and they start wondering what's wrong with me. And this idea that maybe I'm the, I'm, you know, the wrong, I'm trapped in a boy's body or a girl's body that sort of leaps to mind. Yeah. It, it really, it really is heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, you know, all of us were, once teen girls, um, it is a hard time. Uh, you know, puberty is a hard time and, and learning to accept the changes to your body is difficult. Learning to accept the way that men treat you, um, you know, is, is different. It's, is difficult, like dealing with a world of sexuality that, um, you didn't have to before, you know, you went through puberty or, or didn't look like, like a woman, right. Um, that's all difficult and complicated and painful, um, but one of the things that, you know, one of the, the I guess the, the primary people who are supposed to guide you through that, right? The primary person I would even say is your own mom, right? Or your, your parents more um, who are supposed to kind of guide you through having been through it themselves, right? Um, through those tumultuous times and, and on the other side as, a, as an adult, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about what role and what rights parents have um, in all of this, because it seems what, what, what's going on is a total erosion of parental rights and an encroachment from gender clinics, from, um, you know, uh, shelters, from medical professionals, a complete encroachment into the parental relationship. And I want to throw up a, um, a couple of pieces of, of an excellent piece um, that you wrote for City Journal um, on, on several cases, um, one specifically that made me cry of a, a father who um, essentially got good advice, right? Um, he checked his son into um, a mental health clinic, emergency mental health clinic, because his son was threatening suicide. Um, the, the clinic determined with the son that it was gender related. Um, and he got, he was just really lucky to get good advice from a lawyer that says, just, just affirm and then take your kid out because otherwise you might not be able to get your kid back. Um, and I'll put up a, what you wrote about that. 
Ahmed assured Seattle Children's Hospital that he would take his son to a gender clinic and commence his son's transition. Instead, he collected his son, quit his job, and moved his family of four out of Washington. That reads to me like a statement from another country, like from, from a tyrannical society that a, a father would have to quit his job and leave the state in order to protect his child. That, that, that's right. And um, I think he did get good advice, but, but he was skeptical to begin with of the, of the experts. And that was a very good place to start. Um, you know, I think that this we're in this situation for a few reasons. One is we're so divided along partisan lines. Um, we, we're, we're so divided in this country that we won't find common cause over our basic liberties. And, um, you know, and you see this with free speech debates that for some reason, good Americans across the aisle can't stand up for free speech. And, and, and we're seeing this with erosion of parental rights. It's it's game time. I mean, I can't I can't say that enough. Whatever your political persuasion, there are laws being passed. I mean, I looked at the laws of Washington, um, California, and Oregon, and there you have laws that transfer so much power, especially in. So I look most in, at the state of Washington. They have so much control, a thirteen year old over their mental health care, um, that a parent is often not kept in the dark by everyone, the medical provider, the um, the insurance companies, they're not allowed to interfere. They're not even allowed to know what's going on. And the child is in the, the driver's seat completely as a legal matter. Yeah. Um, sorry? No, I mean, this is something that all parents need to be aware of, whether their child is dealing with gender dysphoria or not. I mean, it, it affects every parent. I know, I know many parents um, whose children reached the age of 13. They weren't allowed to be uh, in the room at the child's physical anymore. Um, parents whose children went to college, had mental health issues, um, weren't allowed to talk to the to the uh, college psychiatrist who was treating yeah. the child, having nothing to do with gender dysphoria or transgender or anything. Um, the parents were, were completely shut out. I even know a parent who, anticipating this, um, had their child sign a waiver before she went to college saying that um, her parents could speak with her, her care providers and have access to her records until she graduated from college. And when the parent uh, called the psychiatrist and tried to access those records, the, psych the psychiatrist said, I'm sorry, I don't honor that waiver. Right. So the thing to know is all the things we're learning about what young kids are being taught in school there is this young generation of ideologues in America right now, and they're not everybody, but they are completely committed. They're completely inflexible and they are incredibly radical. And they are not just in the schools. They're also in the medical field and they're in the therapeutic field and they are social workers. And I mean, I spoke to parents for the article whose therapist turned them into child services for not affirming their teenage girl and in her transgender identity and encouraging her on a path to her transition. That was enough to have her own therapist call child services on her. Um, so I, this is anti-science because it starts with the conclusion and it's nothing to do with our politics to the extent that I don't care who you are. This is a dangerous and very radical view, whether you're liberal or conservative. And the problem is we're so siloed and we're so divided that we're not confronting these things together that we really should be. I mean, I'll give you one example. I get 
it, I get sort of criticized all the time by, you know, parents and, you know, people I, you know, um, talk to for going on Tucker Carlson. Why would you go on Tucker? That's a right wing show for the issues. So they've been convinced that a journalist whose issue, whose job is to bring, you know, stories to light, real, honest, true stories should should sort of vet the politics of every person that, whose show they might go on. This is the left strategy. This is completely the left strategy. It's to take the outlets that will have you on and make them off limits. Oh, those are gonna be the racist outlets. Well, who exactly will have us on then? Oh, well, let me just give you the list of, you know, forbidden outlets to discuss your story uh, on. I mean, that's that's what they've done. They've made so much off limits. Um, and and we're not we're not coming together on this. I mean, you know, I for one, I just want to tell Americans what's going on. That's it. Okay. I don't. I don't really care about your politics. Um, and unfortunately, we're we're really so divided that we're not coming together on this in the way that we should. I'll, I'll circle back on how you you've been getting this message out from your book and and what barriers have been placed in your way. Um, but I just want to stick with the topic just for a moment of what parents can do. There, there was this other case in Canada, for example, I'll just throw up the headline. Um, father arrested for discussing child's gender transition and defiance of court order. Um, a lot of this stuff is coming through um, in America too, is coming through, for example, divorce decrees, um, family law. Um, and then as you mentioned, the schools, the clinics oftentimes do not feel they have any obligation to inform parents about what's going on and certainly don't require their permission. Um, you know, you said something off air right before we went live about the success rate of parents, what parents can do um, when they, like, let's say um, their daughter has decided out of nowhere, as is the case in many of the cases you describe, out of nowhere, this rapid onset gender dysphoria that um, her problems are going to be solved by going on testosterone and presenting herself as a boy. Um, not only what can parents do vis-a-vis -vis these institutions, how do parents deal with these institutions, um, but also, you know, what is the general mindset that parents should have um, that in your experience with these, and at this point you've interacted probably with thousands um, of people who have been involved in some way in, in transition where are the success cases? What, um, you know, people who, who uh, go on to lead like happy lives and then end up, you know, for example, not no longer identifying as the opposite sex. Right. So the biggest thing I would say to parents is that no one has your child's interests at heart more than you. you so the most important thing you can do is to trust yourself to know what's best with your child. And unfortunately, a whole generation of parents isn't trusting themselves. They're not. They're not listening to themselves. They're not trusting themselves. When they feel in their bones something is wrong, I don't care what name they'll call you. If something, if you think your child's in harm's way, listen to it. So I had a conversation with a dad a couple of weeks ago, and this is classic. Very nice man. Very good American parent. Okay very concerned about his daughter. She's right now at an art school where she is indoctrinating in this 
trans identity. She's decided out of nowhere, she was trans at 16. She's now in an art school. Everyone's calling her by this different name, a boy's name, and she's getting celebrated for it. And she's a hero. And I, I, I say to him, well, you, you know, she's, it's, it would, would she be able to return to her female identity or would it be terribly embarrassing? And he's like, well, it'd probably be embarrassing because, you know, she celebrated at school and online and with her therapist that I pay for. And I said, well, well, it sounds like she's in an impossible situation. She can't even walk it back. Why don't you take her out? Oh, I don't want to take her out of the art school. Is there just, is there a therapist I can find? Is there an expert who will tell her she's really a girl? And I basically said to him, why should an expert fight harder for your, your daughter than you will? Your daughter right now is completely soaking in this brainwash. She is completely stewing in it. There's no escape. There's no chance for her to go back on this without humiliating herself in front of her peer group. And you won't do what it takes to take her out of the environment. The, the man I interviewed for that article who I called Ahmed, he's a Muslim man. It's obviously not his name, but, but he's a Muslim man. He was absolutely willing to do anything for his kid. And he said, something's really off about the situation. My kid has a lot of issues, but he does not have gender dysphoria. Something's really off. So I need to get my kid out. And, you know, you know, the father I talked to, the girl's binding her breasts. She's wearing a binder. And I always ask parents when they tell me they're minor teenagers wearing a binder, because binders are these compression garments that flatten your breasts. They can call, cause rib cracking and shortness of breath um, and, I, and, and, and deformed breast tissue. And I always ask them, would you let her smoke in the house? And they always say, no, I wouldn't let her smoke. I said, why do you let her wear a binder? These are really dangerous for her health. These are setting her on a path towards an identity that she can't walk away from them that will make her a lifetime patient when she may not ultimately want to be that. Why would you lock her into this? Why would you stand for it? Um, well, so many parents um, I know have been very grateful for the job that you've done speaking out on this issue, shedding light on this issue, but it's it's become harder for you um, to do so in many ways. We know your book was pulled briefly from Target. Um, Amazon would not allow your publisher to advertise the book. Um, and then the book even- never came back to Target, just so you know, the book's gone from Target. Oh, they, they pulled it again? Yeah. Um, and then we know that even parents who are- they, they feel the information in this book is so absolutely critical to get out that they actually took their own money to buy billboards to advertise for your book. And that GoFundMe was pulled down off yeah. of the GoFundMe website. I mean, what is the role of censorship here um, in terms of, of just withholding? I mean, that's what it is, withholding this kind of critical information from parents who are just trying to do the right thing in by their children in a very confusing environment. Right. So, so um, Americans just need to find their spine. I mean, I'll give you an example. The Halifax Library in Nova Scotia is standing up to pride, which cut ties with them over my book. There are over a hundred people on a waiting list to read two copies of my book in a library that has over a million books, but supposedly two copies of my book um, threaten the activists. Okay. Over a hundred people are on a waiting list to read it. No one is standing with the Halifax library. The Halifax library has come under enormous pressure. 
We have to do the same thing here. Do you know how many people have told me they begged their library to carry my book and the library refused or activists stop it, stopped it? We have to stand up for free speech. And, and, we and that's it. the insane thing. I mean, who's threatened by a piece of paper or a book on a shelf? I mean, really, if you're that threatened by it, maybe you ought to reassess what it, what it is your, that your ideas are. Are they that fragile that they can be shattered by a piece of paper? And honestly, you know, the thing is that your book, as you said, just puts out information and puts out an alternative perspective on one subset of the trans community, that maybe there's something else going on here that we should take a look at, or maybe we should pause before we administer these treatments. It's not saying anything about the greater transgender community. I don't, why is that threatening to them that, that people are questioning whether or not these particular people are, are actually true gender dysphoric transgenders? So the reason that they're threatened is because the book is effective. Because if you read the book, you will think, wow, that's a pretty reasonable argument. You know, she's just pointing out the risks. She doesn't come out against transition. Gosh, I don't know why anyone's stopping this book from being published. It's so reasonable. It's an incredibly, I, I think the book's effective. And I think that's who they go after. I think they go after books that are, and, and, and you know, publications. Why, why do they care if it's effective? with parents or other people, as long as they're allowed to live their lives um, the way they want to and, and and they're treated with dignity. Why do they care That's if other people, right? <laughs> right, well, for, for, it, it's a good question, right? Because of course, most of the activists are biological male and I just write about teenage girls. So why are the biological why men? Why do they care? Right, why are they care? So I think that the thing to remember is that gender ideology is an ideology. It's Marxist ideology. And it's very much like Black Lives Matter, critical race theory. They, they really take issue with the family. Their real target is the family. And they, they absolutely, they are sowing complete chaos in our culture. They know they're doing it. And that, that's what they want to do because they want to break up the family, you know, which, you know, Marx considered the, the, the capitalist unit. I mean, they're really against family. And if you don't think they're against family, consider this. They hate the word mother and father, right? <laughs> Who yeah. hates the word mother and father? Nobody starts a family to become a parent. You start a family to become a mom or a dad, right? They Even that word is too much for them. It's unfortunately too much for this administration as well that just released a budget that referred to birthing people. Um, I'm going to throw up this icon real quick of your book, um, Irreversible oh. Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters by Abigail Schreier. Um, absolutely go and get it. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on at the bar, Abigail. And can you just say where we can buy your book uh, since there are increasingly places where we can't? You can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> for now. And we'll find for a new now. way uh, <laughs> if, if they take it down. Um, thank you, you so much. What? I have to say something. Amazon did a full review of the book. Even they had a Glamazon squad review it. They read every page, a whole committee, and they did not find anything objectionable in it uh, that would violate their policy. So uh, it's even Amazon approved for the time being. There you go. <laughs> so go to Amazon um, and purchase Abigail Schreier's book. Um, Abigail, thank you so much for coming on at the bar. Um, we will join you again with a drink um, in, in just about <laughs> two weeks, Thursday, five o'clock. Uh, cool. thanks, thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody.